When a Canadian school teacher launches a comic book company that morphs into an animation studio, magic happens. When Sean Patrick O'Reilly created Arcana Comics in 2004, who knew he would ultimately become Canada's largest comic and graphic publisher and work with the likes of Stan Lee, Gene Simmons from KISS, Mark Hamill, Bill Paxton, Christopher Plummer, and more. Well, anyone who ever met him knew. <clears throat> with 5,000 plus characters and over 300 titles, Arcana is the miniest studio that could, that became the ultimate creative machine that did. His animated films and book titles include Cade, The Clockwork Girl, Howard Lovecraft and the Frozen Kingdom, Pixies, Pandas and Aliens. Please welcome Sean O'Reilly. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you. So first of all, I have to ask you, what grade did you teach? I taught pretty much every grade during uh, my career. I did some kind of, I don't even know what you call it anymore. I have to alleviate certain teachers so they can have their prep for kindergarten. But mostly I taught grade 11 and 12, programming and film and television. Oh, wow. So right up your alley then. Right up my alley. I actually created the <laughs> film and television course, created the programming course. And when I left, that was, I had the full course load. So it has to do with how many kids register. So it's kind of fun. That's very cool. So in those early days, when you first launched the comic book company, did you exclusively look for publishers to publish your stuff or did you do some of it yourself? I did. This is funny. I don't, have I ever said this? I don't know. I've told people at conventions. There, there is a place, was a place called digitalwebbing.com. I don't oh, know wow. if it's still around. It was a online area. To be brutally honest, I submitted a comic there. And just like everyone else or many others, they can relate. I got rejected. So I didn't know what to do. So I formed my own publishing company. And yeah, I, I, I started with Cade. That was our very first comic we published December 2003. So was that your line in the sand moment when you decided from now on everything was going to be in-house? Somewhat, actually. That's kind of fun. And oh, over here, over there, I don't know, I'm in the mirror view. That's Alex Ross, who did an original painting of Cade. That was not really oh. planned. It's just kind of happening. It's and Both these are Alex Rosses. And for me, you know, Alex Ross, I mean, come on. He's the, the Norman Rockwell of comic books. I mean, he's fantastic. It's incredible. Anyway, that was kind of the moment. What I've kind of realized, I've tried to continue to adopt this as my philosophy. If I cannot control the process, then I cannot control the outcome. And the second I, I give up something, either as a creator, a writer, a producer, whatever you have it, the second you give up something, you just got to know that's out of your hands now. And you have to be kind of have that, what they call it, the serenity prayer, I think, and just know <laughs> that's okay. And, and be okay with that. And if you don't like it, hold on to it, right? Yes. As somebody who's published a few books, three through traditional publishers, I can wholly agree with that. Your first animated movie was The Clockwork Girl. So much goes into producing an animated film. How was that process and where the heck did you start? Yeah, Clockwork Girl is an interesting one. I was at Emerald City Comic Con probably 2008, I think. Uh, I was walking the floor 
and there is a a young artist named Kevin Hanna. He had a character which he called the Tinkerer, and it was just a really cool design. It was in CG. I've always wanted to kind of do you know CG animation, and I walked by him totally random. I'm like, hey, that character, the Tinker, or you know that character. What what about him? He's like, it's called the Tinker. Oh, that's awesome, man! You did a great job. Thank you. Have you ever thought about doing comic books? He's like, oh, I love comic books. And it was, that was kind of it. I'm like, what's the story? And then there wasn't a major story behind it. So him and I met at Red Robin in Blaine, Washington. And I'm a big fan of like, you know, there's seven, you know, arcs to, to storytelling. And it's Shakespeare. And one of them is Romeo and Juliet, Forbidden Love. So we, I kind of started pitching this and we, we went back and forth. And it was the, the technos versus the biology. And that was kind of the, the framework for the clockwork girl. You had the robotic girl. Then you had the, uh, the mutant boy, Huxley, named after, after Aldous Huxley. And my background is biology. That's what, how I got into teaching. And there you go. That was it. It's kind of Romeo and Juliet, but with robots and monsters. So... What project would you say pushed you to the next level? Was it Clockwork Girl or was it working with Stan Lee? Was it working <laughs> at that 2012 Comic-Con with Bill Paxton and Gene Simmons? Humbly, there's been a few. And I had, I don't even know if you know this, maybe. I had the biggest push to date, I think, uh, this year. I just directed my first live action feature film. It's been pretty awesome. I, I was It was July and August. And so it's called Corrective Measures. I wrote it, directed it. I'm producing it with my wife. We financed it. It stars Bruce Willis, Michael Rooker, Tom Cavanaugh, Kevin Zegers. It's a phenomenal cast. Very, very uh, happy with how th everything turned out. And so that was one where it's like, I haven't like, I haven't felt stretched or pushed, like you said, in quite some time. Ultra Duck is our 11th animated feature film. I've done 11 of these 10 of these feature films and some TV series. And every time you do one, I mean, our first comic book, huge milestone. I remember it like vividly. It's like, you know, unbelievable. Then going to my first convention, first Comic-Con, first comic that I didn't write publishing, Ant. And then, you know, first being involved in a, a movie called Paradox with Aaron Gilbert, who just produced Ghostbusters Afterlife and um, The Joker. And so, you know, my first, that was getting a producing credit. And we had a comic book turned into a movie called Paradox starring Kevin Sorbo. And that was a huge one. And then after that was Clockwork Girl. And then Pixies, massive. Kagagi was like, Kagagi is the first one Arcana ever did. And then Pixies was the first one Arcana did as a feature. And long story short, I think it's a bunch of upgrades. And every time you're kind of like, oh, that's cool. And you can sometimes feel the stretching and the growing pains. So you once mentioned that Arcana's movies differ, well, they clearly do from Pixar or Disney, and that they're uniquely geared towards a specific audience. Do you, can you define that audience in a specific, a specific way or does it change from film to film? It does change from film to film. I mean, you know, when you have monsters like, you know, the, the, the big boys, Pixar and all them, and Netflix is obviously doing this as well. You know, they're spending hundreds of millions or at least tens of millions, and they tend to have a somewhat broader appeal. It's called co-viewing for Quadrant. I tried doing that, but at the same time, I really need the tip of our spear hitting a demographic. Uh, I think that's one of the things I've done well. The Howard Lovecraft trilogy 
Hard Lovecraft in the Frozen Kingdom, Undersea Kingdom, Kingdom Madness. We opened up the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Oregon. I believe that was 2016. We opened up the festival and, you know, we had Stars, who's an amazing partner, and Shout Factory, who's an incredible partner. And it was like honing in on that horror genre of H.P. Lovecraft fans and then the historical fiction of Howard Lovecraft, all the things he wrote about as an adult actually happened to him as a kid. Targeting that, I think, has made it a little bit easier. And Go Fish, that was our last released one, 2019, through a much younger demographic, nowhere near horror. It's these little talking fish that, you know, are found in, in the Bahamas. I mean, it's completely different. So I think being smaller... Sometimes you have to find your targets on what you're wanting to hit as opposed to trying to have a, you know, massive four walled event where everyone can watch. That's, that's been my belief. So when you are doing animated work and certainly when you're writing comics, you don't really need to be on set anywhere but for animated films given the last couple of years a lot of stuff has been shut down you're doing a lot of things virtually anyway right so or do you have everybody congregate in one place where all the computers are so that they can work on these films like because so many people work on animated films can you even put a number on it yeah so with us, the computers, ironically, are aggregated at one place. So the building we're in, weirdly, we actually owned up till 2012. That was my ex-producing partner and I. And then I bought it back almost seven years to the day later in 2019. It was kind of crazy. We moved back in, I think, November, December 2019. And then obviously the world shut down March 2020. So we were only in this building for about four months and I'm back here now. And then we sent everyone home. So at, at the height, I think last summer we had about 150 employees. We're, we're less now. We just wrapped Heroes of the Golden Masks, which is our biggest, most ambitious animated film to date. Comes out next year. What we had to do is it was really challenging at the beginning because like animators, because they're lip syncing, if you're off by, say you remote desktop into your computer, which is here, and there's even just a five millisecond delay, mm -hmm. all your lip syncs will be kind of off. So with all the animators, we had to drop off computers at their front door, and then we had to do a VPN so that they, they basically have to upload and download all of our assets through a, a private network. And then other people don't need that delay. It's a little pain in the butt when you move your mouse. There's a little bit of a drag to it. But if you're doing lighting or programming or compositing, not as important. But then the compositing people want to see the final color image. So they would do all their work from home and then they'll come in like on a Friday afternoon, mask on, you know, washing their hands and going crazy. And they would come in, use a, a very expensive color calibrated monitor, make sure all their colors for the week were on point, And then they could approve them and then go home and everything. So as of now, we're in production of the Canadian Night Trilogy. So it's a, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, where we're doing a trilogy of, of night movies. I won't say you wrote you on the company, Sean. I know, I know. I'm not sure. But right now, I think we maybe have 12 people here, maybe 15 working here today. Most people are at home still. And I think, honestly, for us and many other businesses, I, I think this is the new norm. Yeah, I, I don't think I could drag people to work here. They they get to save their time commuting, save their money, whether it's gas or parking or bus or whatever it is. We do have, I 
think everyone coming to the studio once a week. I'd like to see two or three times, but I don't ever imagine us going full time, having everyone here again, which I kind of miss humbly. Well, and I think even having them come in once a week is kind of a nice change for everybody because if you're working at home stuck behind a computer, you want to you want to get out of the house once in a while and see a human being in real life instead of just touching a screen. Totally. And, and honestly, this is relatively new. We've had some people that really never left. I mean, for a lot of 2020, this building had maybe two or three people in it, like two people. Enough to kind of like, hey, my computer needs resetting. Power breaker tripped. Can you flip it back on? That was 2020. And only in the last month have we had people coming in kind of one day a week. And being in an artistic studio, there is a lot of synergy. And it is that one plus one equals mm -hmm. three scenario where you can talk to someone and an idea sparks. We use Discord, fantastic product, but there's nothing like being in person and getting that rapport. We use Google Hangouts. We use ShockGrid. We use a lot of management software, but it's, I still love the, the, you know, a group of people brainstorming together. I imagine you have the servers and the bandwidth and everything that you have is, is almost crazy because. <laughs> Mar March and April and, and even. You can't just have your TELUS router and it's going to no. hold everything. <laughs> Last year, March and April, me and a guy named Brady had to do so much kind of R&D daily and just kind of make stuff up which remote desktop was the best. We we actually had two internet service providers at the same building. And so I was paying for two accounts. And so we would just toggle them back and forth and like have races, which one's better. And, uh, you know, obviously we dropped, I'm not going to promote anyone or <laughs> the one that was as fast. We, we canceled that account and we kept the one. We had just figuring out how to do this. And it was a bit crazy back then. Wow. Streamlined. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So who is an Arcana creator? What are the types of stories that you look for when somebody wants to submit a comic book story or even a film idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the ones I've loved work with, Grant Chastain, he's the creator of Corrective Measures. And so, you know, that's the one that's kind of bubbling through my mind a, a lot right now. You know, I think for me, it, it's about clear vision not only from the story, but from the tone. Being from comic books, I'm very character driven. Mm. You, get, you get a beautiful character like Spider-Man or Batman or Deadpool or whoever. And once you have the character, it feels like a thousand stories can spawn from it. And, and I think that's what's kind of led to the MCU. It leads to all these, I'm watching Hawkeye, just watched the new episode. It's really fun and because it, it's character driven. And a lot of times in movies, and it's good, but it'll be very narrative driven. You're talking about, you know, some sort of dynamic either on the world or a major disaster. For me, it's always been characters. And so, you know, that's kind of what I look for when reading. Is this able to springboard? Can I relate or understand? Yeah, character driven. So how long does it take a script to get ready to shoot? Oh boy, uh, does it ever get ready? <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things like corrective measures. I think before we went to camera, I might have rewritten that thing 10 to 12 times. And then mine's even not that bad. We had about just over a 20 day shoot. And I think there's probably four or five versions that happened during that shoot. So about once every second or third day, 
I'm doing some sort of, not major rewrite, but some sort of rewrite and then changing things. In total, I probably did 20 versions of the script. Hmm. Um, yeah, somewhere in there. And it's funny because like, you know, I didn't, humbly, I didn't get it sold until about the fifth version. So the first four are just for kind of, and I'm not a big fan of that. I don't love rewriting my work if I don't have to. Does anybody? I know, because otherwise you make yourself crazy. And it's like, I'd rather present, you know, an original naked first draft and let it sit there. And then if we can get some traction and someone has interest, like, look, maybe we'll do this, but we're going to need it to be a Bruce Willis feature. Okay, that's awesome. And then you start rewriting it so that, you know, Bruce Willis can fit into the narrative. What's your favorite part about the filmmaking process? Hmm, good question. I think actually it's kind of the pre-production and it's like, so the writing is very fun, but sometimes I feel, I don't know, isolated, not depressed, but kind of like, man, you have so far to go from a concept or a writing to actually get this thing made. Sometimes you feel like you're writing and it's like, this will never see the light of day. Uh, and so that's, that can be challenging. You've got to persevere. So all the writers out there, don't, don't give up. It's hard. I know the pre-production process where you either have some sort of your financial structure or you have a distributor or something that gets to be fun because now you're writing with intent. Mm. You, you, and that, that's good because like for correct measures, we filmed a lot of it at the Willingdon youth detention center. It's a, um, it's a, a closed prison. And so I rented a prison on like 55 acres of land for like three weeks. And so we owned our own prison, which was kind of cool. And then once you're there, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, there's that boiler room downstairs. The boiler room's amazing. We have to find a way to work the boiler room <laughs> the script. So then all of a sudden you start writing. It's like, oh, instead of having the scene where they talk there, we could have that in the boiler room. It's so much better. Look, that stuff I love. So the actual setting becomes the character as well. Totally. Yeah. And if you find a great setting, I totally believe you should write the script for the location if you get enough time, especially if it's a cool location. So it's really hard to get a film off the ground without money. And how has finding money for a project changed since your first film to the last film? It's not so much the money. It's, it's the, the, they call the minimum guarantee uh, pre-sale with a minimum guarantee. So it's getting that. So mm. how I've done it, there's, you know, a thousand ways to skin a cat. A lot of people like I keep hearing, it kind of drives me nuts. I keep hearing like, Oh yeah, Netflix is green lighting everything. Oh, they do this. They buy a sort of, except for me. So there's that way to do it. And if you go with Netflix or Disney or any of these big boys, they just write a check. Here you go. Please hand in, you know, invincible season two, here's money. Uh, and then, you know, they're off to the races for me. What I have to do is I break it off into North America, which is called domestic. And then you have the rest of the world. So once I've pre-sold domestic, and we have our, our minimum guarantee, I at least have a, it's like a, a post-dated check. And so at least once I hand in the movie, I know I will get that amount. Now that amount varies from project to project. And then once you have that, theoretically, you can borrow money against it, cash, and you can go to a bank or whatever, and then you have foreign. And no one can ever really sell the world outside of the big boys in advance, but you sell territories, especially mm. if it's like a Bruce Willis movie, his name and, and everything will carry into Australia, the UK. And there's some major territories where it'll be like, 
don't know, easy, but relatively easy. And then you start collecting your foreign pre-sales. Once you got all the paperwork done, then yeah, you need a loan. And you know, there's numerous banks we've used. RBC, National Bank, City National Bank, Bank yeah. of California. I feel like I'm plugging them all. I've used <laughs> them all. Um, <laughs> and they've all been great. And yeah, then you can then you finally got your your stash of cash and then spend wisely and go do your thing. Wow, it's crazy how much effort and time and, and tentacles go into every single project. It's yeah, just for amazing. Sure. My, um, my my joke or my little quote thing, I swear like I, I want this in like Wikipedia or my tombstone or something. My joke has always been I keep 10 plates spinning so that one of them has my dinner on it. And it's <laughs> like you have the you have this great idea that you're pitching at Lionsgate and you have this wonderful little thing you're trying to get at Netflix, you're trying to do this thing over here. You get an opportunity to work with Gene Simmons. It's like of course, yes. Stan Lee, yes, give me one more plate. Let's do it. Let's do a Stanley project. Jim Lee, yes, let's do this. It's like you get so many plates spinning, and it's like, okay, which one's gonna be monetized? Which one will you know get to production? So that's kind of my little joke there. Mind you, working with some well-known names helps monetize the project to begin with. If you're working with an unknown or Joe Schmo, uh Nobody's ever heard of them. And so that must be a little tough. But the story is the best story ever. Sometimes, you know, that's harder to get off the ground. And I, t I actually tell people that I'm like, don't underestimate the value of like a, a notable celebrity. I mean, if you're having a project or a big screenplay and you can bring someone in, I mean, Berserker with Boom has Keanu Reeves built right. You know, and when, when I did Cowboys and Aliens, we had, it was John Favreau. It was the second he was attached. It was like, we, we kept pitching the project and we had like 20 different takes. We had, what if the Wayne brothers did Cowboys and Aliens? What if, what if these people did Cowboys and Aliens? And the second John Favreau came in, it was like, whoosh. It was like a, a sprint to the finish line. And there's some people like, so if you, have, if you have a screenplay, try and attach whoever, like a Jason Momoa. I produced a John Travolta movie earlier this year. Mel Gibson. I mean, I just produced a movie with him. And it's like those names, you know, they do have value a lot. Of so that, that can be another entry before selling to a Lionsgate or a buyer, just attaching them. They have enough gravitas that you're able to more likely get a sale. Yeah. Yeah. Or you've got to do it yourself and plug it up on YouTube. <laughs> totally, right? <laughs> so Miskatonic, did I pronounce that right? That's correct, yeah. Well, done. Miskatonic has been released on stream for free, and you've incorporated virtual reality into it. How much more does that complicate the filmmaking process with VR? Not too bad, I have to say. So this was kind of something we played with at our animation studio. We've been using the Unreal Engine a lot. So I've used it for previs. We have what's called a previs, um, sorry, a pre-production application. And it basically is an Unreal Engine where a director who knows me little about programming or, or Unreal are able to kind of frame your, your shots and create multiple shots and sew them together. And so that was our first Unreal project. The next one is called Pegasus. And so we're rendering the entire thing in Unreal. It looks beautiful. It's a little short film. If pigs could fly. And then the, the third one we did in Unreal is Miskatonic. And so we took all the assets from the Howard Lovecraft trilogy, 
imported them into Unreal. And, you know, it took one person probably about, um, I'd say two months, one person, two months, because the, a lot of it's the, the programming's there. It's like, once you get all the assets, character, modeling, rigging, animations, obviously all the creative, the, the scripts, once all that's there, Mo sewed it together quite fast, actually. Mm. Very quick. So will Arcana be developing a game studio in the future? My limited experience with gaming has not been great. We've released this back in the day. We released three different things in the iTunes store. Oh, and I had a friend of mine that worked at EA and he's like, and again, I don't know. I I know what I've, I've been told. I've never had this. And so it's like they have paywalls. And so like a game, like, and I'm making this up, like what's it called? Clash Royale, I think. Right. Is that the app one? You know what I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. I think so. Anyway, you get these apps are really trendy and kids love them and they do all their stuff. And then like, you know, only 1% of the people will pay money. And then, you know, so you give them a free game. So you have to, you have to get 40 million released so that, you know, maybe 400,000 will pay. And then you need each person to pay, you know, 20 bucks. So that's going to give you what, 8 million. And, and then you work from there. And so, but how do you get 40 million people to download it? It's so much, and that's the marketing. And that's why it takes these massive games that start with this, get to this, get to this, and then that's their revenue. Right, Um, right. It's it's very challenging. I don't think I will probably ever get into a game studio. That and programmers. Mm. Um, It's been very hard for us to find riggers. And I have my own personal philosophy. I don't don't stand behind any of this. But I think it's because, like, when you have an – artists like a character designer an animator they sit back and they kind of appreciate their work they're like oh man that was really cool i designed that character that painting i love my painting that's a great looking painting and i think maybe when you have programmers this is kind of like code and so i find it's been a little more challenging to keep programmers longer term mm-hmm. we've called our rigor the defense of the dark arts position it's like we had i think three or four riggers in one year i was like what is happening like and we have full benefits. We got everything. And I could not. It's just, I think it's the nature of the beast being a pro. Until you hit Google or Amazon or Microsoft or the big boys, it feels like there's a lot of the jumping around to programmers. Yeah. So what's next on the plate for Arcano and Sean? Definitely corrective measures. I'm finishing off this Canadian night. I think we're in day 13 of 20, I think right now. It's filmed in two different countries. So we're doing our part. And then uh, corrective measures were in post-production and I'm currently in pre-production of a project I cannot speak about, but I will say this, one of the characters in corrective measures should lead to a sequel, not a sequel. It's kind of a shared universe. Mm. So corrective measures will be its own. And then one of the, the prisoners from corrective measures maybe gets out, not a spoiler, and then starts kind of a, a new, a new, the next movie I want to, to film and direct and produce. And then it's going to have this whole shared universe, like MCU. Yeah, yeah. Your Canna cinematic Well, universe. yeah. <laughs> totally. So uh, do you go, are you going to go back to some of your other, like, you know, I keep bugging you about this in the past. I still want to see a movie, like a live animated movie <laughs> with Cade. <laughs> oh, so Cade's actually in that new ACU one, to be honest with you. Oh, good, so, good. Ten years ago, I always wanted to make a Cade movie, and I was pushing, and I actually got really close, and it kind of scared me, because it would have been, eh, 
a little bit lower budget and everything than I would have probably wanted. I think I'm at the point in my career now, I'm actually, I, I have a very, I think, good pitch with Cade and I have a previously mentioned celebrity role where that mm -hmm. person would be in the Cade universe, not Cade himself, but kind of right. like, a, kind of like a whistler to blade, if you will, kind of the mentor. And so I kind of have that going and that'll be part of this ACU thing. But long story short, the other thing I've thought about is like, redoing not redoing but like doing a live action version of maybe pixies yeah um, that's kind of new percolating in my head i'm like because the hardest part when you when you pitch everyone wants branded material right like i'm involved right now in blood rain and the old video game and movie series uh, and so what people are wanting is that branded recognition but it's like well how do you how do you start the brand do you know what i mean it's like well yeah teenage Mutant ninja turtles i think there's a version Seth Rogen's doing where he's focusing on the teenage of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And then I think they're rebooting it again as a TV series. And it's like, okay, it's fine. But for those of us that don't own Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> how do I create that brand? And so I was looking at Pixies. I'm like, oh, we have an animated one, right? And there's been, Disney's had great success doing, you know, Cinderella, the animated Beauty and the Beast, and then they do a live mm -hmm. action. Version. So that's the other thing that's been kind of percolating. Yeah, there's so much there's so much to work with. It's right? where do you begin? I mean, your head must, like you say, you're spinning only 10 plates in your head. Well, it's more right now. I think I, I'm literally involved in 13 productions. I had to count them the other day. And with all the different pitches and plates, I don't know. 50 <laughs> plates spinning. So one of them has my dinner on it. Thank God for assistance. Right? I know. Laura's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what is the best place? to find your your movies in your animated series yeah they're kind of all over i mean amazon's a fantastic place comiXology is a fantastic place uh, i have already mentioned shell factory stars teletoon they just picked up both pixies for another five years right and fish for five years so beyond teletoon both those both those were on crave there's just there's a lot walmart's with dv netflix has has and so it's funny as of right now, I don't think we have anything in Netflix, North America, but we're on Netflix, Australia with Go Fish and Panda vs. Aliens as well, I believe. It's funny because like I was saying that at the beginning, that global Disney buys it or Amazon buys it or whoever buys it gets worldwide distribution. With our ones, we have to kind of be concerning of our distribution. So it's pocketed. So Lionsgate owns UK, but Netflix owns Australia and hmm. kind of go from there. So what would be your advice to someone who could be any age, could be from high school student to a retiree as they craft their storyboards and think about turning it into something real? What's your advice to them? <laughs> Boy, I would maybe give two parts. Try, well, and this comes with an addendum. Try any which way to get it made because there is no one way, comma, protect yourself. One thing I've I've done, I think I own 85 domain names. If, if you come up with a great title for your book, your screenplay, whatever, register the domain name. Have you ever heard of like Movember? Yes. Right? And uh, in locker room, change rooms across the world, there's always like, oh, my buddy created November. Oh, did he? Yeah, my buddy did this. Oh, Movember? <laughs> it started with me. I'm sure it did. Whoever owns <laughs> Movember.com, you might not have created it, but you own Movember.com. So yeah. I own the hopevirus.com, clockworkgirl.com, 
pixiesmovie.com. Pixies is impossible. But I'll suggest registering your .com. You can always register even an idea with the Writers Guild of America online. So do anything to make it done, but protect yourself. And then the second thing, like honestly, persistence. Back in the day to get kind of Clockwork Girl up, I pitched Clockwork Girl and there's maybe people that watch this and I pitched it 150 times. I got so many rejections. I One of the best rejections I ever had went into DreamWorks to pitch Clockwork Girl. On the way out was Ben Stiller. This is <laughs> 2007. And I'm just like, oh, it's Ben Stiller. That's amazing. And so I go upstairs and pitch DreamWorks, Clockwork Girl. And I sit down and I'm just like, hey, I, was, I just saw Ben Stiller. Like, yeah, yeah. He was pitching us one of his movies. What? I'm like, I now have to follow up my comic book. Oh, no. After Ben Stiller just left the room. Oh, okay. That's cool. And uh, funny enough, that movie was Megamind. If you look in the credits, I, oh, I okay. one of the producers of it. So I think he was either meeting or doing Megamind. But anyway, 150 no's. That was a fun no-ish. But I got one yes. And I got one yes. And that was it. It was a company out of Korea called CJ Entertainment. And they said yes. And it just kind of went from there. And it was... That's all you need, right? And then my old lawyer, uh, Ken Levin, says, as long as you got the chip in a chair, as long as you're in the game, right? Like the poker game. Give you a chip, give you a chair, have an idea, pitch it. You know, that's kind of all you need. So the hardest part is not losing hope or faith yeah. or believing in yourself because it's, uh, it's not uh, industry for the meek. Thank God for digital media and online meetups because before we had that we were just by ourselves at our desk totally well now there's so many options i mean yeah. you know there's patreon indiegogo kickstarter tiktok youtube i just watched the uh, the mr beast squid games the other day with my son <laughs> i mean like it's just so like we didn't have a third of these options like not even back in 2012 thing you had nothing you had big old you know, broadcasters like the big networks or you had big televisions, movie studios. Now you got like, you can do anything. Like it's quite crazy actually. Yeah. It's, it's really broadened the so the much horizon and it makes it makes a lot more room for totally. creators who would never otherwise. Instagram get influencers. <laughs> That's going to be my next one. <laughs> You never know. Hair or something. I don't you know. never know. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you. Wonderful to uh, talk to you about film and and all the things that Arcan is the ACU is doing. I love it. <laughs> There's a new tagline. Right. You heard it here first. Yep. <laughs>